Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Tuesday, June 4th, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 24. This episode is brought to you by Polyculture, our farm resources blog, formerly Ocean State Organics. We create tools for sustaining backyard food production on small plots and in urban areas. If you enjoy this content, please support us by going to www.patreon.com slash polycultured. This is part two of a two-part series on an introduction to permaculture. Part one, episode 22, delved into the history of permaculture as a movement. It was necessary to root a discussion on permaculture as a critique of colonialism and farming. Therefore, I discuss specific issues that have arisen with permaculture, such as white settler dominance over the teachings in permaculture, classism of the organics movement, and indigenous erasure in the history of permaculture principles. I encourage you to listen to them in order so that you can also share in this context. This episode, part two, will be on urban farming with permaculture, and we'll cover more details about our research, infrastructure planning, and more, which discusses how we've actually been able to go about implementing permaculture strategies on the plots of land that we've thus been able to work from. Permaculture was developed in the 1970s by co-workers Bill Mollinson and David Holmgren in Australia. The term was a contraction of the words permanent agriculture. The idea was that the design and implementation of permanent sustainable agricultural systems in contrast with existing linear agriculture systems, which we know are energy intensive, extremely wasteful, and cause a great deal of soil loss, deforestation, and because they are made to serve capitalist markets, are gravely environmentally irresponsible on all fronts, production, distribution, consumption, and waste. Systems designed with permaculture principles in mind tend to have closed energy cycles being modeled on natural ecosystems. So there should be no need for synthetic inputs such as fertilizer or even irrigated water. It was born out of the resistance to the rapid expansion and consolidation of the monocrop industrial food system. Therefore, permaculture opposes many of the linear systems within the industrial food system. It should also have a high degree of interlinkage waste outputs that are cyclical in some way, meaning one output is part of an input for another part of the system. The ideal is a closed cycle, where outputs become inputs, requiring no primary inputs and producing no waste products. This will not be found in existing single-output systems, which is why permaculture design tends to produce multi-layered and highly interlinked systems echoing natural ecosystems. So what's the difference between organic agriculture and permaculture? Well, first off, there's organic, a term meaning something which is naturally derived, and then there is USDA organic, which is a certification which places a set of restrictions on farms that hold the certification. Produce that's labeled organic is referring to the latter, and organic agriculture is profit-driven, looking to produce high yields for market, which ripen at the same time, where pest control is closely monitored and where certain kinds of fertilizer inputs are used, and it mostly relies on a mix of human and machine labor. In contrast, permaculture systems are guided by the ethical principles and core tenets which shape its philosophy, and they aim to produce a wider range of products than food for market. Permaculture gardens usually accompany a building, a village, or a home, and serve purposes beyond market gardening. They use the garden's natural resources to provide shade, filter the air for recreation, 
or habitat for other living beings. Permaculture is designed to operate cyclically when organic produce still makes its way to market in a linear system of production. It is also useful to recognize the historic moment that Holmgren and Mollison were writing in. Rachel Carson had written the book Silent Spring in 1962, with its dire and subsequently validated warnings about the threats of DDT and other pesticides that would, they would pose to the environment. Shortly after, James Lovelock published The Gaia Theory, proposing that to gain a true understanding of our planet, we should view the whole Earth as a superorganism, termed Gaia, and with the same self-sustaining and self-regulating feedback mechanisms that are found in all other living organisms, he argued, were found on the planet as a macroorganism. However, permaculture is not this ultra-complex theory. It's basically the application of common sense and observing what nature is already doing on its own, coupled with a few basic design tools. I'm going to start with the three core tenets of permaculture. These are care for the earth, provision for all life systems to continue and multiply. This is, of course, the first principle, because without a healthy planet, no life here can flourish. So we should be centering the earth before our own needs in many ways. The second core tenant is care for the people, provisions for people to access the resources that are necessary for their shared existence. And the third core tenant is fair share. The third ethic is reflecting to each of us that we should not take more than what we need and that we must always reinvest our surplus back into the earth. By assessing our own needs, we can set resources and time aside to further the above principles. To return waste back into the system is to give it new life and usefulness. Next, I'm going to talk about the 12 design principles of permaculture. These were articulated by David Holmgren in his book, Permaculture, Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability. Number one, observe and interact. By taking time to engage with nature, we can design solutions that suit our particular situation. Number two, catch and store energy. By developing systems that collect resources at peak abundance, we can use them in times of need. Three, obtain a yield. Ensure that you are getting truly useful rewards as part of the work that you are doing. Four, apply self-regulation and accept feedback. We need to discourage inappropriate activity to ensure that systems can continue to function well. Five, use and value renewable resources and services. Make the best use of nature's abundance to reduce our consumptive behavior and dependence on non-renewable resources. Six, produce no waste. By valuing and making use of all the resources that are available to us, nothing goes to waste. Seven, design from patterns to details. By stepping back, we can observe patterns in nature and society. These can form the backbone of our designs with the details filled in as we go. Eight, integrate rather than segregate. By putting the right things in the right place, relationships develop between those things and they work together to support each other. Nine, use small and slow solutions. Small and slow systems are easier to maintain than big ones, making better use of local resources and producing more sustainable outcomes. 10. Use and value diversity. 
Diversity reduces vulnerability to a variety of threats and takes advantage of the unique nature of the environment in which it resides. 11. Use edges and value the marginal. The interface between things is where most of the interesting events take place. These are often the most valuable, diverse, and productive elements in the system. 12. Creatively use and respond to change. We can have a positive impact and inevitable change by carefully observing and then intervening at the right times. The three core tenets and the 12 principles make up the backbone of the philosophy of permaculture. First, I want to talk about food forests and layers of vegetation. Every ecosystem has a plethora of interrelationships between its component parts. Trees, understory, ground cover, soil, fungi, insects, and animals. Because plants grow to different heights, a diverse community of life is able to grow in a relatively small space, as the vegetation occupies different vertical layers. There are eight layers in a food forest. The first layer is the canopy, the tallest trees in the system. These are large trees that dominate but don't cover the entire canopy, allowing light to shine down in certain places. The second layer is the understory, trees that flourish in the flickering light underneath the canopy. The third layer is the shrub layer, a diverse layer of woody perennials of limited height, think berry bushes. The fourth layer is the herbaceous layer. Plants in this layer die back to the ground every winter, if winters are cold enough, that is, they don't produce woody stems that the shrub layer does, and many culinary and medicinal herbs are in this layer. A large variety of beneficial plants fall into this layer as well, so these could be annuals, biennials, or perennials. The fifth layer is the soil surface or the ground cover. There is some overlap with the herbaceous layer and the ground cover layer. However, plants in this layer grow much closer to the ground grow densely to fill bare patches of soil, and often can tolerate some foot traffic. Think of what we would typically call weeds or, of course, the mosses. Cover crops can retain soil and lessen erosion, along with green manure that adds nutrients and organic matter back to the soil, especially nitrogen. The sixth layer is the rhizosphere. These are the root layers within the soil. The major components of this layer are the underground civilization that we discussed with soil and the organisms that live within it, such as the plant roots and the rhizomes, like potatoes and cassava, as well as spices like ginger or turmeric. The rhizosphere also includes fungi, insects, nematodes, microarthropods, worms, and more. The seventh layer is the fungi layer. As I discuss in episode 16, the intro to mycology, Fungi is an extremely important neural network for the plants, allowing them to transmit chemical messages, obtain nutrients, and gain access to air, water, and more. The eighth and final layer is the vertical layer. This is comprised of climbers or vines, such as runner beans and lima beans, or really any vine variety. Now that we understand the layers concept, I want to talk about polyculture companion planting and species guilds, as well as the planting zones that are kind of the dividers for permaculture in terms of design. First, companion planting is another way that permaculture observes nature and attempts to facilitate the same conditions. 
Sometimes known as guilds, this is a group of species that work together well in an ecosystem, providing and protecting for one another, and functioning in harmony. Companion planting most often refers to plant species which will work well in close proximity, but guilds supports more of an interspecies integration. So mutual support guilds would be groups of not just plants, but animals, insects, and fungi that work well together. In your permaculture garden, you could encourage, if not directly bring in these plants, animals, and fungi to facilitate a jumpstart to the ecology, especially in a space where there's lifelessness or there isn't a lot going on in the soil. One of the important points about permaculture is that it encourages humans to step back in certain ways. If you can group certain plants together that can support one another, it's less work, less time, and less management, all things that will be important in the future of agriculture. So shifting to this companion planting uh, kind of way of thinking about gardening or designing your garden can really actually lessen the amount of work that you have to do because the ecosystem is supporting itself. Permaculture is broken down into five main zones. These zones are a guide for organizing the design elements in a space based on how frequently we would need to access those resources. Zone zero being the closest and five being the furthest away from where you live, work, or otherwise congregate. Sometimes this is where people critique permaculture on being too human-centered, which is definitely valid and should be acknowledged. However, I find that zone systems are extremely useful for simple things like, where should I put my chicken coop in my yard? What about my compost or my herbs? To me, zone systems help me organize my space for the flow of my gardening process. So that would include the process of cooking the foods that I grow and also putting organic food waste back into the ground. So zone zero would be the house or the center of the space. We would use permaculture to think about zone zero through how to reduce energy and water needs, how to harness the natural resources such as sunlight, and generally about designing the space to have close access to the kitchen garden and herbs. Zone one would be the zone nearest to the house, the location for those elements in the system that require frequent attention or that need to be visited often. These include the kitchen garden, herb garden, lettuces, berry bushes, your cold frame or greenhouses, propagation greenhouses, a worm bin for kitchen waste, and other things that you might want really close by. Zone 2 is used for perennials, which require less frequent maintenance because they are perennial. Potato patches, squashes that might need a large area, perhaps fruit and nut orchards, other edible kinds of bushes, beehives, or large compost heaps. Moving out to zone three is a larger space where you could use this space for legumes, grains, corn, amaranth, or other crops that are grown together. Zone three can incorporate animal agriculture as well, so space for mid to large size ruminant animals like sheep, goats, cows, or smaller fowl like chickens, guinea fowl, quail, or other animals even, like rabbits, or a pond for fish. Zone 4 is a semi-wild area, so Zone 4 mostly takes care of itself. It can be used for foraging space, to gather firewood, and to create a safe buffer for wild animals. You can even encourage certain species by facilitating the growth of wild foods which sustain their population. 
so you can be both intentional about filling out zone four while also leaving it relatively undisturbed. And zone five would be a wilderness area on the outskirts. There's no human intervention in zone five apart from the observation of the natural ecosystem around you. Through this zone, you allow nature to enrich your inner zones by bringing its own biodiversity. Permaculture also integrates knowledge of agroforestry and the benefits of utilizing tree matter. Trees and shrubs have a place with crops and livestock. Forest gardens can incorporate already existing trees, or trees can be planted with the intention of long-term sustainable land use systems in mind. Agroforestry and food forest species guilds are often used interchangeably, and some of the oldest gardens in the world have these components. These spaces, of course, predate the term permaculture by hundreds of years, which again goes to show that Mollison and Holmgren were not creating something new with permaculture, but rather they were writing about something that had already been known for quite some time. Similarly, the Hugel culture technique realizes the value in wood, this is a practice of taking logs and burying them with the soil to create rounded mounds for planting. The buried logs increase soil water retention, soaking up enough water to sustain crops through dry seasons. They also attract a lot of activity, fungi and insects, and create a raised bed type of structure without having to actually build any infrastructure. You're basically burying logs and creating a mound. We also know that the matter from trees drop leaves, bark, and eventually pieces of decomposing wood or wood chips are extremely valuable for a successful compost. Sheet mulching refers to protecting the soil by covering it with a mulch material. Mulch is a loose term. These can be leaves, wood chips, stones, or other dry materials. The purpose is to help absorb rainfall and to reduce evaporation of water on the soil's surface. This creates a habitat for soil organisms and insects while suppressing weed growth and protecting against frost. Of course, this is modeled after the forest dropping organic matter down to the earth from the canopy. Eventually, sheet mulch breaks down into the soil itself through the work of the organisms, and more can always be added on top. I'll get to this more when I talk about no-till permaculture. The next permaculture concept is rainwater harvesting and key line design. We've known for quite some time that water is the most taxed resource on Earth, and that water shortages and drought are currently and will affect the lives of billions of living beings. This is why permaculture techniques that center water are really important. The first concept is learning how to harvest rainwater. This means to accumulate and store rainwater for reuse before it reaches an aquifer. It can be used in many different ways, such as for drinking water, water for livestock, irrigation, and more. Some people connect their rain gutters directly to a catchment cistern with a spigot, and others have the cistern feed directly into an irrigation system. Another way to harvest water is to utilize gray water. Gray water is domestic wastewater originating from sinks, laundry, or bathing, which are recycled on-site to a landscape irrigation system with trees or a wetland. Obviously, you have to use soaps that aren't harmful to the environment to make this gray water reharvesting successful. Another technique dealing with water harvesting is key line design. This was developed by P.A. Yaumans in Australia to maximize the beneficial use of water resources. 
A key line is a line that can be drawn to denote a topographic feature of the land which directs its water flow. This observance of nature's own design is used to design the drainage system on that site of land. Think of holding a bucket of water on top of a hill. If you were to just dump the bucket, the water would roll straight down to a valley and pool, which would miss the hill grass to the left and the right of where you poured it. But with key line design, the idea is to capture rainwater at the highest possible elevation on a peak and to distribute it outward towards the drier ridges of the land using gravity, which slows the natural concentration of water in the valley. Precise mounds falling slightly off the contour of the key line are built to spread water more uniformly, distributing it across the broadest possible area. If you dumped your bucket on a hill built with a key line design, the water would reach the first horizontal mounds on the hill and begin diverting itself left and right, reaching a larger surface area. Key line can be extremely useful for drought and flood mitigation. Another important permaculture concept is animal agriculture and rotational grazing. A lot of people ask me why animals are a necessary part of permaculture. My answer to this is that natural ecosystems include animals, and so in order to mimic the systems of growth on Earth, it's very important to include animals and to educate people on their role in the cycling of nutrients in a given ecosystem. Animal agriculture has largely been demonized because it's become an easy scapegoat for climate change and an easy way to avoid having to talk about the issues with the industrial agriculture system. Industrial agriculture is destroying the planet, and most people are too busy arguing about the next person's consumptive habits to take a critical look at why animals make farms more successful capture carbon, and perform other necessary tasks. Domesticated animals on a permaculture farm live an enriched life. They always have a job to do. But thankfully, it's the job they love to do. They increase efficiency and productivity of the system by foraging to cycle nutrients. They clear fallen fruit from orchards, maintain weeds and brush, spread seeds across pasture, and perform pest maintenance. They have the magical ability to turn less valuable materials into nutrient-dense manure, which contributes to the building of topsoil and the health of the ecosystem. Furthermore, maintaining a rotational grazing schedule for your animals can have an extremely positive effect on the health of the soil and the plants that are grown in it. Rotational grazing is where your herd or flock is systematically moved to fresh pasture, as it would be in the wild which then leaves manure in the old pasture behind to plant in. Many researchers and permaculturalists have studied the impact of animal grazing on a piece of land, and it seems to start off an ecological succession which prepares the fertile ground for planting. One technique that has just completely changed the way that I've thought about gardening has been no-till or no-dig gardening. Tillage refers to disturbing the topsoil in order to plant crops. No-till farming is a facet of permaculture because, again, looking back at nature, with the exception of extreme weather events, there is no tillage. Instead, nature piles organic matter on top of organic matter, such as when leaves fall to the ground, and worms and fungi create aeration underneath the soil. The goal of no-till techniques is to let the underground civilization of insects and microbes develop and thrive without disturbance. This allows them to do what they are designed to do, 
like turn nutrients into plant-soluble nutrients, and to capture carbon, filter water and air throughout the system. It's used to make soil stronger and more resilient by reducing or eliminating soil erosion and preventing disease with certain organisms from dominating that system. The most important aspect to no-till systems is the way that it can repair the topsoil and bring a return to soil fertility. And of course, it's increased efficiency in small farming operations. Unlike industrial agriculture, which requires big machinery and fossil fuels, no-till systems are mainly hand systems and allow for more loose soil, more frequent planting, and overall less intervention. I want to switch gears for a second and talk about natural buildings because they aren't often talked about when discussing permaculture, but I think that it's actually really vital that we talk about how to support permaculture design in places other than a traditional farm kind of setting. Right around the time that Mollison and Holmgren were writing about permaculture, Michael Reynolds was in Taos, New Mexico, working on creating biothermal homes, which he would soon term earthships. Natural buildings can use discarded items or particularly durable natural substances. They're designed with renewable resource systems in mind. They're geographically specific and must respond to the needs and desires of a particular climate and topography, as well as the weather patterns. The direction of the sun is important, as well as water capture and reuse, and sewage treatment. A permaculture farm would hopefully have an eco-home or natural building as their zone zero, which would be integrated into the permaculture design as a whole. The reason why permaculture has so profoundly affected my life as an urban farmer is because it works in many different settings and employs creativity to garden effectively. Therefore, permaculture is not limited by scale, whether urban, suburban, or rural. The curriculum and the principles are universal and can be further experimented with in our spaces. The goal is to design and implement perennial food systems rather than the arduous work of annual cropping. Permaculture is most sustainable when there is a mixture of both. Cities in particular have a lot of wasted space between vacant lots, the city parks, street medians, backyards, front stoops, and window boxes. Each addition helps the next, and eventually bringing back native species and edible species and allowing for them to inhabit the city and restore balance would have such an impact. This is what I intended to do by community farming in Brooklyn, and eventually when we built the chicken farm from there. And this is why I know it can be done. And after getting a sense of the methodologies behind permaculture practice, which I admit are a lot to take in, I kind of want to get into the steps you can take to urban farm in the limited space that you do have. Urban farming may be difficult to implement for a number of reasons. Access is the most common prohibitor for people who want to get started urban farming but don't have the space. We must reimagine farming as something attainable, even in small supplemental ways. The aim of this podcast is to help you get started in your own way, even if you have no access to outdoor space. The second largest prohibitor is cost. Many people have an interest and even sometimes a history in agriculture, but can't spend money on gardening supplies. So this is kind of a chance to share ways to reduce the amount of consumption necessary to get the outcomes that you want. 
Similarly, we started farming without outside funding, so many of these techniques were born out of our own ingenuity and desire to be cost-effective. The third main prohibitor is time. With all the other things and people we must be responsible for, how do you find time to take up gardening? This information is meant to help you garden efficiently, and that means using techniques that utilize natural systems of growth. The less labor you have to do to maintain it, the better. So how do you actually get started? What kind of decisions do you need to make? I'm going to outline the steps we took to start food production. Phase one is all about compost, research, and infrastructure planning. The cornerstone of permaculture food production is living soil. It has to be the first thing you grow. And the reason why is because everyone creates food waste, so you already have half the components you need to make it, and because you will cultivate the organisms necessary to cycle nutrients into plant-soluble nutrients. That is, nutrients that are in the right form to be utilized by the plant. And what does the plant do with that energy? It creates lots of fruit. If you want to focus on learning how to sustain yourself through small operation food production, I think it is imperative that you learn on some level how to create compost, how to manage compost, and how to plant with compost. Soil that is bagged or even soil that has received organic amendments to it or is labeled as compost will not create rapid growth in the way that living soil can. And this is having to do with how much activity in life exists in that soil. If you want to learn more about composting and this whole process of making living soil, I suggest going to listen to episode 2, Compost Basics, where I explain more about the process of the organisms, how they make plant-soluble nutrients, and the process of starting a compost bin, both indoors and outdoors. You can use a 5-gallon bucket, a Rubbermaid bin, or any container that will hold the material. Every time you add your food scraps, add some dry material, such as newspaper, cardboard, brown paper, hay, or dry leaves. If you follow this simple 50-50 procedure, your bin should not emit a smell when you turn it. Red wiggler worms can be added to aid in the breakdown, either bought online or you can forage your first worms and watch them multiply. You can choose the compost method of set it and forget it, or you can intermittently turn the bin to speed up the process. Turn it as much as you'd like. Once a day for 30 days should have your compost ready to be sifted. Once the compost has aged, use another bucket and sieve, as such as like a piece of hardware cloth, anything that you can sift the fine soil from, and you can separate the unprocessed chunks of scrap from the finished compost. The first phase of your smaller urban food production would be to cultivate compost and research time for infrastructure planning. Set aside a day to watch only the light in your space. Take notes to refer to later. This will help you plan which species you want to grow and where is best suited for them to grow. Do other research on the best containers for you, whether they be raised beds, pots, planters, wooden boxes, window boxes, five-gallon buckets, bins, crates, old dresser drawers, bathtubs, or something else. Practically anything can become a container for your garden, and you can find ways to design them to make them look really nice as well. I love just getting a burlap by the yard and wrapping it around an ugly container. Suddenly you have a cute planter skirt. So if aesthetics are important to the design of your garden, you can also think about how those elements are going to work within your infrastructure plans. 
work with what you have access to and build your micro farm around that access. We have been successful finding wood shipping pallets in industrial areas where it can be taken freely, such as the back of your local grocer. Ask the grocer deli for their pickle buckets and keep a lookout for chicken wire, window panes, and any other useful materials like hardware, hinges. Search online for wood chip piles or tree trimming services that will drop off to you directly. Appropriate your neighbor's brown leaf bags or dry compost material or mulch for your seedlings. Check Craigslist's free section often. As your compost is getting ready and you're organizing your permaculture design for your space, you have to determine what you want to grow. Starting with foods you love to eat is motivating and keep your list small enough that it will be manageable for you. It is extremely exciting to look through the seed catalogs. But starting with less than 10 cultivars is always a better way to learn about each plant, slowly understanding its needs and building off of that learned knowledge and relationship every season. Join a seed share, ask a community garden, or find a local seed library so you don't have to pay for seeds. Phase 2 is soil testing and land remediation. Phase two concerns soil testing and land remediation, which can impact the soil for generations to come and can begin to address industrial contamination of the cities. This is centering people who do have access to some outdoor space and will be coming into contact with native soil in some way. If you grow strictly with your own compost and you know you'll be keeping your plants in containers, you don't have to deal with this step. Soil testing is extremely valuable information because of the potential risks of not just growing in contaminated soil, but touching that soil, breathing it in, really coming into contact with it in any way can be dangerous. If you get your soil tested and it comes back positive for lead or other dangerous heavy metals, knowing about and deciding on a remediation plan so that you can garden safely is imperative. If you want to farm on raised beds, you may want to use a barrier method and then cultivate the soil yourself. Not only does lead live in the soil, it lives in the groundwater as well. Use a food-safe plastic tarp to cover the entire exposed area. This keeps the soil and groundwater completely separate. On top of the tarp barrier, we laid out a base layer of cardboard, hay, and then we topped it with a generous amount of wood chips. Wood chips will also attract and multiply the worm population. Once you've created a separation between yourself and the contaminated soil, you can construct your raised beds atop the wood chips, and eventually this will all break down into layers of topsoil which has the ability to immobilize and render lead inert. Compost generation is one of the most important lead remediation techniques to keep city dwellers safe from the century plus of industrial contamination. If you're going to garden in the city, it is worth it to understand remediation methods if you should need to employ them on a site. Phase three is operation size and making decisions. When it comes to your operation and successfully managing what you can handle, it always works better to start small and to continue to build off of your existing garden. If you have a small outdoor space that can handle animals, it will provide an increased level of soil production and food waste breakdown that is accelerated and more enriched through the complexities that the animal brings to your permaculture design. When we decided to get chickens, we knew that they could provide eggs and meat. Not only that, but 
we learned to raise them without using a lot of water and avoided buying feed through their food waste diet. This made them sustainable animals for us and cost nothing to upkeep. Indirectly, they provided for us through manure, pest management, and being active composters through digging and scratching. Once we got the chickens, we were able to process literal tons of food waste, easily over 100 tons in about five years. Instead of going to landfills, that food waste was diverted into manure and eventually into soil. If you can use animal agriculture to increase the efficiency and complexity of your farm operation, I encourage you to try it. One animal per person in the household is usually a sustainable number of animals and is highly respectful to their massive contribution to the entire system. If you're going to incorporate animals into your compost and soil production system, you need to build them separate, safe infrastructure that is enriching for them and provides them freedom to move, while also keeping them out of your kitchen garden. If you don't have the space for animals, think about how you'll build your compost infrastructure and garden beds or boxes. You can be imaginative and set aside different areas for experimentation with different techniques. Try companion planting in rows, or try companion planting in a way that integrates layers of vegetation. Not all gardens have to look the same, so let it reflect who you are and your goals or your spirit. Phase four is infrastructure and materials reflective of permaculture systems. Think about using infrastructure materials which reflect permaculture principles and can aid in those permaculture systems that you want to create. Food safe buckets and bins have been one of the most successful garden projects I've ever done. I love that you can pick up a bucket and move it around without disturbing the roots. If it's not doing well in a certain corner, you can move it to a lighter corner. With living soil, you never have to worry about your bucket running out of nutrients because you're always adding wood chips or more compost on top. For a detailed breakdown of bucket gardening, please listen to episode 20, Container Gardening. The most copious and free wood asset is raw pallet wood. Here are some simple formulas for urban farming with pallet wood. The first formula is pallet formula for a garden bed. Three square pallets cut in half make six pieces. Create a six foot long by three foot wide garden bed by fastening two pieces together and another two pieces together to make two long sides. Attach them to one another by using the two remaining pieces to make the short sides of the box. With simple hardware, you have a garden bed constructed in less than one hour. You can cut pieces of other pallets or assemble logs, stones, or hardware cloth to fill in the open pallet slats before filling it in with soil. The pallet formula for a chicken coop is five square pallets makes a box with a roof. Use a lightweight pallet and hinges to create a pallet swinging door. Angle the top pallet slightly for rainwater runoff. Build a roost with bound branches for them to sleep and outfit with hay, dried leaves, or wood chips. Bury chicken wire below the base of the structure to prevent digging animals from infiltrating. When you're ready to build a chicken run enclosure, you can attach it to this coop so that the chickens can go in and out of their space. Lastly, I have a pallet formula for a compost heap. Use three square pallets fastened together to form a U-shape. Create a compost heap and cover with a tarp weighted down with stones. 
What was most important to us was having a safe and cheap garden infrastructure and chicken coop that was accessible, efficient, and in the case of the coop, easy to clean. Raw pallet wood was freely available and able to be transported, so we decided to learn how to construct a garden out of these prefab squares. You must have a hen house, also known as a coop, and an outdoor area, also known as a chicken run, and pretty tight protection from sky predators and digging predators on the ground level. With minimal hardware and tools, we constructed raised beds in a chicken coop by fastening pallets together and using hardware cloth or chicken wire to seal up the slats. A staple gun or nails worked well to hold the wire to the frame. Once you have your infrastructure together, you can begin the next phase, which is phase five, closing the loop and soil maturation. Phase five is all about closing the loop on your permaculture systems. Permaculture is about building an ecological network, and you'll find this way of thinking extends to a network of other people who participate and learn from the concepts of permaculture as well. At first, you're focused on building and getting started, but once you start the process, you quickly learn it's all about how to help facilitate the cycles and to do less management of the site overall. Harvesting rainwater in buckets can be a good start to a simple catchment if you don't let it sit, of course, because mosquitoes are not fun. When you use wood chips, you lessen the need to collect water because the wood chips soak up that water for later use by the plants. We mainly used rainwater for the chickens and made our own apple cider vinegar to keep them free from infection when it got wet and muddy outside in the spring. The chickens were fed food scraps like vegetation, fruit peels, and some proteins, including insects directly from the vermicompost. Chickens that are eating insects and vegetation are eating a healthy, biodiverse diet. This also means that feeding them nearly costs nothing. Use all your own cooking scraps to feed your birds. Ask your friends to build a small food scrap bag in their freezer and bring it over when it's full. Ask local restaurants or coffee shops for scraps. Food waste is everywhere. Work with other people in your network to gain access to different kinds of seeds when you're ready to expand your operation. Each growing season, pick a new plant or group of plants that you want to learn about. Treat them as the living things that deserve respect and admiration. See how your soil changes as it matures over time. And observe which plants grow well together and do it more intentionally the next season. Start thinking about the cycles and learn how to save seed for yourself and others. One of my favorite food forest techniques is the multi-sow technique, a process of sowing seeds in bunches. And rather than thinning them out, you allow them to develop interlocking root systems, which cover more of the open ground and can increase soil health. I've noticed it works particularly well for lettuces, radishes, carrots, turnips, corn, beans, and many other crops. The idea is again to mimic nature, which leaves very little ground uncovered. This again results in less maintenance because you don't have to weed or water if your ground is already filled in with the intentionally sown crops or perennials. Phase six is caring for your garden. This phase continues to focus on how permaculture can result in less hands-on garden maintenance, more of a let it grow philosophy. Caring for a permaculture garden does not require all that much attention once the plants are in the ground. No dig, no till gardening systems mean that as your plants are growing, you're always welcome to add more mature compost from your pile 
or compost tea at the base of the stem to help increase the microorganisms living in and around the root systems. You don't have to do much soil intervention other than adding to the top layer. In the same way, using mulch or planting cover crops like wheat, alfalfa, and rye are again going to help cultivate a strong permaculture civilization below the soil surface, which will give you the yields you want while increasing biodiversity and creating a habitat for wild species, as well as the ones you've cultivated. Essentially, caring for your permaculture garden should not be energy intensive. The system should have everything it needs to cycle on its own. The diversity of your mini ecosystem will contribute to its balance, and you'll eliminate the need for harmful antibiological interventions like insecticide or herbicide. If you have a problem pest, research what its predators are and begin to attract them. Use neem oil or insect netting if you're having serious decimation issues, which might not be your fault. They could have to do with an overall ecological imbalance in the area in which you live and not really your individual garden. The seventh and final phase of learning to garden with permaculture and urban space is assessment and evaluation. Permaculture is a living curriculum. Learning from nature and learning from societies that already utilize these concepts is imperative. Giving farmers of ancestral traditions their proper credit and taking their work as a serious contribution to modern concepts in permaculture is just as imperative. It's important to remember that this knowledge has been lost for us or disassociated from our culture, but there are still many people on earth practicing and upholding and teaching traditional methods of agriculture, which oppose the industrial globalized system and who do respect the earth and treat it as sacred. Designing by the sun, rain, moon, climate, and other natural systems shows our respect for the earth. We should design whole permaculture systems which reflect the cycles of nature and oppose monocropping, which has dangerous implications for soil loss, erosion, biodiversity loss, and is far too carbon intensive. We have to assess our subsistence goals, who we are aiming to serve and protect through this process, how we can not just lessen our impact, but have a positive impact on the earth, and to attempt to heal the damage that has already been done. How can we provide far more than what we need and recenter abundance, which is the natural order? These are all questions to ask yourself as you embark on your urban farming journey with permaculture. And permaculture must keep its philosophies central to its methodologies. We cannot lose sight of the fact that things are very dire right now for the climate, for the diverse species of life on Earth, and of course for our own lives. So my hope is that permaculture can offer us some supplements and eventually some solutions which are communal, accessible, abundant, and wise. With these seven phases, I hope that you can understand some of the processes, techniques, and philosophical challenges we had in starting up our own urban farming with permaculture and what that system entailed. Every small step builds on the next, and when we work together, we can create magnificent systems which have far-reaching capabilities beyond the work of individuals. Part one of this series, episode 22, delved into the history of the permaculture movement. This episode... Part two of my series on an introduction to permaculture discussed the principles of permaculture, several techniques, and the phases of growth in my own understanding of urban farming with permaculture. It's been a pleasure to talk about the permaculture practices in more detail and to share these thoughts with you. 
Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please recommend it to someone. Please like and subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Anchor, as it'll help others find it in the future. I would love to read your reviews to hear about how I'm doing. This episode is brought to you by Polycultured, our farm resources blog. We create tools for sustaining backyard food production on small plots and in urban areas. If you enjoy this content, please support us by going to www.patreon.com slash polycultured. This concludes episode 24 of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Good night.